Good morning, everybody. It's good to be with you on this. Well, to me, it's a, it's a special day, as, as the Lord's Day is every week to start the week. But uh, I don't know, forgive me if Pastor David already mentioned it. I was uh, a little later in stepping into the sanctuary as he was making announcements. And uh, 2023 has been a gift to us. It has been a gift to us in this way that I didn't know until about a month ago. And uh, I was glad to know before it ended so that I could ruminate and share with a few others, including yourselves, of this gift. It's a gift to us because it is that year that comes every once in a while where we get 53 Lord's Days. So you're getting extra credit this morning, right? Um, another, another time, another opportunity to sing, pray, read God's Word, hear from God's Word, participate in the sacraments, and be with His people. Turn with me in your Bibles to Second Chronicles. Second Chronicles chapter 24. Yes, I am still preaching through the kings of Judah, and uh, Lord willing, we'll complete it in 2024. So, 2 Chronicles 24, this is the word of the Lord. Joash was seven years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Zibiah of Beersheba, and Joash did what was right in the eyes of the Lord all the days of Jehoiada the priest. Jehoiada got from two wives, and he had sons and daughters. After this, Joash decided to restore the house of the Lord, and he gathered the priests and the Levites and said to them, go out to the cities of Judah and gather from all Israel money to repair the house of your God from year to year and see that you act quickly." But the Levites did not act quickly. So the king summoned Jehoiada the chief and said to him, Why have you not required the Levites to bring in from Judah and Jerusalem the tax levied by Moses, the servant of the Lord, and the congregation of Israel for the tent of testimony? For the sons of Athaliah, that wicked woman, had broken into the house of God and had also used all the dedicated things of the house of the Lord for the Baals. So the king commanded, and they made a chest and set it outside the gate of the house of the Lord. And proclamation was made throughout Judah and Jerusalem to bring in for the Lord the tax that Moses, the servant of God, laid on Israel in the wilderness. And all the princes and all the people rejoiced and brought their tax and dropped it into the chest until they had finished. And whenever the chest was brought to the king's officers by the Levites, when they saw that there was much money in it, the king's secretary and the officer of the chief priest would come and empty the chest and take it and return it to its place. Thus they did day after day and collected money in abundance. And the king and Jehoiada gave it to those who had charge of the work of the house of the Lord, and they hired masons and carpenters to restore the house of the Lord, and also workers in iron and bronze to repair the house of the Lord. So those who were engaged in the work labored, and the repairing went forward in their hands and they restored the house of God to its proper condition and strengthened it. And when they had finished, they brought the rest of the money before the king and Jehoiada. And with it were made utensils, 
for the house of the Lord, both for the service and for the burnt offerings, and dishes for incense and vessels of gold and silver. And they offered burnt offerings in the house of the Lord regularly all the days of Jehoiada. But Jehoiada grew old and full of days and died. He was 130 years old at his death. And they buried him in the city of David among the kings, because he had done good in Israel and toward God and his house. Now after the death of Jehoiada, the princes of Judah came and paid homage to the king. Then the king listened to them, and they abandoned the house of the Lord, the God of their fathers, and served the Asherim and the idols, and wrath came upon Judah and Jerusalem for this guilt of theirs. Yet he sent prophets among them to bring them back to the Lord. These testified against them, but they would not pay attention. Then the Spirit of God clothed Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada, the priest. And he stood above the people and said to them, Thus says God, Why do you break the commandments of the Lord so that you cannot prosper? Because you have forsaken the Lord, he has forsaken you. But they conspired against him, and by command of the king they stoned him with stones in the court of the house of the Lord. Thus Joash the king did not remember the kindness that Jehoiada, Zechariah's father, had shown him, but killed his son. And when he was dying, he said, May the Lord see and avenge. At the end of the year, the army of the Syrians came up against Joash. They came to Judah and Jerusalem and destroyed all the princes of the people from among the people and sent all their spoil to the king of Damascus. Though the army of the Syrians had come up with few men, the Lord delivered into their hand a very great army, because Judah had forsaken the Lord, the God of their fathers. Thus, they executed judgment on Joash. When they departed from him, leaving him severely wounded, his servants conspired against him because of the blood of the son of Jehoiada the priest, and killed him on his bed. So he died, and they buried him in the city of David, but they did not bury him in the tombs of the kings. Those who conspired against him were Zabad, the son of Shimeath, the Ammonite, and Jehozabad, the son of Shimrith, the Moabite. Accounts of his sons and of the many oracles against him and of the rebuilding of the house of God are written in the story of the book of the kings. And Amaziah, his son, reigned in his place. This is about the seventh or eighth king I've covered in Second Chronicles. What I want you to see with all these kings, if you've heard these sermons or you've been reading through Chronicles, is this. Yes, these things seem to rhyme and sound the same, but each of these kings is unique and comes up short of the ideal in their own personal way. Rehoboam was a fool. Abijah was short-lived. Asa ran well but finished poorly. Jehoshaphat was great but made a worldly alliance. Jehoram was evil. Ahaziah was hopeless, and now we come to Joash. Same story, different names and props. Our goal is to see how earthly kings that are ordained by God teach us about Christ the king. One lesson we shall see clearly with Joash, as I've read, maybe you've picked up on some of it, is this. Personal responsibility is essential in the Christian life. Put another way, there are things that you must do that no one else can do for you. What do I mean by that? I'm not talking about pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps. This is a you've got to put in the effort type of thing. But, and I don't want to, 
don't want to burden you, right? You're sheep. You're not oxen. Sheep don't bear burdens. But I am stating that there are things that you have to do that nobody else can do for you, namely to believe, to repent. Nobody can do that for you. Godly parents do not save children. Godly grandparents do not save grandchildren. Christ saves. Godly church members do not save other members. Christ saves. There's only one mediator between you and God, and that is the man, Christ Jesus. And Joash is explicitly named in our text as a man who depended on someone else to do something for him. Someone else to look after spiritual things. And that someone was a godly man who grew old and died. So there came a point where Joash was left to answer for himself, and he could not. In this light, we'll have two points this morning. Reform and rot. First, reform. In the previous chapter, uh, Joash's grandmother, Athaliah, acted wickedly, and she wiped out all of the royal family, every male in the house of Judah. Joash was the only one who was saved. He was hidden away in the temple by his aunt, uh, Jehoshabeth, who was married to Jehoiada. So Athaliah removed the royal family, and she reigned for six years. And then Joash becomes king at the age of seven. Athaliah is removed by a coup led by Jehoiada the priest, and they overthrow her. And then Joash is crowned king. So hope for the kingdom has sprung eternal in the human breast, as it were, for those who look upon this boy king who had only known life in the house of God and nowhere else under the instruction of a priest who is his uncle and caretaker. You might be tempted to think at the beginning of Joash's reign, seven-year-old boy, taken care of by priests who are going to lead him, who are also his family. He's been instructed in the law. He's been in the house of God all his life. He might be protected and might be a solution because he's been hermeneutically sealed off from the rest of the world. We'd be kidding ourselves if that's what we wanted to think, but we're also tempted to think this way. Uh, An old view in life of humanity but even in theology, but also education in particular, there's an old view known as tabula rasa, a blank slate, a white slate, a clean slate. The temptation to think that children, being small people, are just born neutral, and if we can just protect them from things, they won't do evil things. Other people, the environment is the problem. If we could just protect them, protect their minds protect them from ideas and from copying bad examples. One bad apple ruins the whole lot, as it were. They're born seemingly innocent, not knowing good or evil. But we'd be kidding ourselves. It's not what Scripture teaches. I don't even think it's what experience teaches. It's just we're prone to think that. I think we're prone to hope in some things that aren't the real solution. And so what Scripture teaches is that we are born in sin, that we are naturally inclined toward evil. We have a natural bent away from God. Joash is supposed to be the proof of the tabula rasa, the blank slate view, right? He's a year old when he ends up in the temple. He's only raised by priests who are godly men who instruct him in the law. 
and he's protected from wicked Athaliah and the wickedness that has corrupted the house of Judah. We'll talk more about where he ends up, but as I read, you see where he ends up. So he's not proving this view. Uh, he's the, uh, the case that uh, proves the rule of sin reigning in our hearts. But he becomes king, and as he becomes king, he has help. He has great help in his uncle, Jehoiada, a brave, good man. A brave, good man who has patiently endured evil, has overthrown a queen, and has now instructed the future king. And what does Jehoiada do now that he's the uncle of the new king? He lets him reign. He doesn't interfere. I'm sure there's some type of caretaker situation until he comes of age, but we do see Joash come of age and uh, lead. So Jehoiada, once he has power in his hands, he lets the king rule. And it's not easy to set power aside. So Jehoiada's own character is tested in this situation, but he proves to be one who can let God's servants do their particular work in their particular offices. Priests teach and pray king's rule. So how do we see Jehoiada let Joash rule? Well, look at verse 5. And he gathered the priests and Levites and said to them, this is Joash speaking, go out to the cities of Judah and gather all Israel money to repair the house of God from year to year and see that you act quickly. So the king has an urgency as he's giving orders. He's coming of age and one of the first things that he wants to do is to seek the welfare of God's house. So this happens repeatedly as we're talking about reform. This is our first point. Where do we see the reform start? The king has now come of age and he's, he's got some reforms he wants to make. We see a lot of reformation in Chronicles. It happens repeatedly. And uh, I couldn't help but think of uh, The Incredibles, right? Superhero movie, uh, Mr. Incredible, saving the world. He's being interviewed on probably some late night television show. And uh, they're asking him questions about, you know, what it's like to be a superhero. And he's like, you know, I, I feel like the maid. I just cleaned up this mess. Can't we keep it clean for, for 10 minutes? And so in that sense, the kings are sort of like superheroes and not. Uh, you have good kings. They clean things up. You have bad kings. They make messes. Right now we have a good king. He wants to clean things up. He wants the, uh, the temple, the house of God to be restored. It's fallen in disrepair. It's uh, it's in need of physical repair. Fresh paint, carpenters, masons to do the work. Uh, probably needs to be physically cleaned. Um, it's been spiritually polluted as Athaliah gave the utensils, as the text says uh, in verse 7, that they'd uh, broken into the house, uh, which is strong language there, and took the dedicated things for the use of God and gave them for the use of idols. So it's been spiritually polluted as well as physically fallen into decay. What we see with Reformation in Chronicles, and I think in life, is we see the spiritual and the physical go together. It's not just a spiritual Reformation. Ah, his heart changed, he became a better person, we're moving on. But there's, there's physical change with the spiritual change, and this is represented here with the temple, that there is uh, there's spiritual reform that will go with this physical reform as they rebuild the temple. Typically, there's a rediscovery of God's Word. Perhaps literally a scroll is found, or um, a prophet comes and speaks a word, or both. And we see these physical changes. There's outward acts of repentance, 
perhaps worship uh, or the fixing of a building. And so we can get bored with repairs in the Old Testament and dialogue about financing this building the generations campaign. But this is God's holy temple being described. This is where God said, even though not a thing can contain him in all the universe, that he would choose to specially dwell here in this place, and they would do well to take care of it. And so the heart of the people and their leaders is often summarized when they're simply describing what the buildings look like in this day and age. You can kind of read a book by its cover in this situation. So the Old Testament often uses heavily physical things to represent spiritual things, right? A physical exodus out of Egypt, out of slavery, to represent the spiritual deliverance from slavery to sin. The physical giving of a promised land to represent the spiritual reality of entering into God's rest through Jesus Christ. The New Testament is more focused on spiritual realities, which is why people were pretty disappointed when Jesus came and preached. He wasn't releasing prisoners. John the Baptist was probably a bit bummed about that. He preached. He declared things. He spoke of spiritual things. And he greatly disappointed people because he rejected becoming a physical king. So we see a contrast with the New Testament and Old Testament, yet we also see that they're complementary. They go together. Jesus was doing his New Testament ministry among a people who had an Old Testament mindset. And Joash, in our text, is rightly concerned about the lack of funds for the temple, about its disrepair. He understands biblical priorities for how God's people are to use the means that God gives them and how they're to steward these things. So God gets the first fruits, the tithes, the offerings, free will gifts, etc. And these first fruits provide for the buildings for the work, the people who do the work, and even those acts of work that are more physical in nature, perhaps mercy. The reform of the physical building is not the end in itself. They're not here to just gather and say, okay, now we've got a fresh coat of paint, the building looks good, mission accomplished, put a bow on it. But it's merely the beginning of change that's going to occur outwardly and inwardly. Because now once the building is ready, what do you do with it? Verse 15. But you, excuse me, wrong verse. Verse 14. And when they had finished, they brought the rest of the money before the king and Jehoiada. And then there were made utensils for the house of the Lord to replace the ones that had been uh, polluted, both for the service and for the burnt offerings, and dishes for incense, and vessels of gold and silver. And they offered burnt offerings in the house of the Lord regularly, all the days of Jehoiada. So once we have these wonderful buildings and a, a terrific campus, the job is not finished because we have built the building. The work is just beginning. The building is a means for something. It's a means to an end. It means to be a gathering place and a visible space for the end of worship. Worship, burnt offerings, sacrifices are occurring now that the building has been put back together. So the work of the priests is worship. Offering of sacrifices of praise and thanksgiving, even the work of discipleship. And so this priority of the physical reform is enabling the spiritual reform. It allows me to speak about something that uh, 
I don't often get to say, someone might not get to say in a sermon very much, uh, and that is the work of our deacons. We have two offices, right, in the Presbyterian Church, office of elder, the office of deacon, two classes of elder ruling and teaching, uh, but they're one office. And so we hear and talk about elders more. They do more things visibly, such as preach, pray, teach. Uh, but we also have the office of deacon. And so as we have, we have great priority and uh, uh, respect for the office of elder, and I'm excited about next Sunday when uh, Jonathan will be ordained to the office of teaching elder, and uh, we'll be able to commend him in his work and also to be able to receive the gift that God has given to the church. Uh, these officers, elders and deacons, are gifts to the building up of the church, Ephesians 4 says, building up the church and the equipping of the saints to do ministry. Uh, but the office of deacon has been historically neglected in the church history. Uh, the, in, in various traditions, uh, it often just gets reorganized. People don't know what to do with it. Uh, so in Roman Catholic, Anglican traditions, it's inserted into the hierarchy and is somebody who would read Scripture, even preach, and is uh, just a different type of what an elder uh, is doing. Um, and you can work your way up from deacon to the different ranks. I don't know all the titles in the different hierarchical traditions, but you, it's just seen as some kind of junior elder and assistant elder. But that is not what Christ teaches in the Bible. That is not the office of deacon, according to God's Word. Deacon is a distinct office with a distinct role in the economy of Christ's kingdom. Jesus was actually really the first deacon. He wasn't necessarily called a deacon, but he is referred to as the Lord's servant. Uh, and the verb for deacon, service, deaconing, is used of him in the Gospels. Because what does he do? He visits the sick. He feeds the hungry. encourages the faint-hearted. He's setting an example of what is described as an office of sympathy and service. So in the Reformed tradition, it's not immune to making mistakes and neglecting this office. But it has an established tradition of restoring the office to its proper role and function. This is something Christ has given to his church. And so Joash's concern for repairing the temple and reforming the collection of funds is an example of the necessity of the office of deacon. We don't see it in the Old Testament, but we see it in the New Testament. Uh, and so the office of deacon would complement the office of elder in the twofold ministry of word and deed. So as a pastor, I get asked, what do I do for work? Uh, sometimes people can think that perhaps Sunday is the only day I work, and uh, so that would mean I worked a little more this year with 53 Sundays instead of 52. Uh, but I like to be able to tell people that ask certain things that I like to do, and uh, I like to be able to mention that I get to work with the deacons, and uh, I get to be alongside them in ministry. I'm going to work with these men who are looking after the building, handling the collection of money, they're visiting and praying with and for widows and the sick and the friendless, men of good reputation. So it's one of the privileges of my job that I get to work with the deacons. Uh, so I wanted to be able to point some of those deacon things out in our text. But as we get back to the text, uh, one of the lessons we see is if you neglect the physical, you can expect 
spiritual decline. If you're not taking care of your body, it may be an indication that you're not taking care of your soul. So if you seek reform of the spiritual, plan for it to be hand in hand with the reform of the physical. It is like uh, any young man who all of a sudden starts coming to church, he's dressed up a little more nicely or just wearing a clean shirt perhaps, and he's shaved or wants to keep the beard so he's trimmed, uh, and perhaps he got a haircut. You say, why? What, what happened? Well, it's pretty easy. All these physical changes are rooting in something non-physical. He's in love. If a little skipping of the heartbeat can cause all that outward change for a young man, how much more should the regenerative power of the Holy Spirit stir in us works of love and goodness? And so we see reform. Joash is on a good path. He's working with good advisors. He's got his priorities in line. Seems to be the start of a good reign. But now we get to the second point. Rot. Joash's reforms are good and in order. But notice how many times our texts speak of Jehoiada. Jehoiada is mentioned in verses 2, 3, 6, 14, 15, and 17. So maybe you caught it when I read uh, right at the beginning there in verse 2. And Joash did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. If you stop right there, we hear that sometimes in Chronicles. That should be good news to our ears. But you always have to finish the sentence. All the days of Jehoiada the priest. This is the first time we have it mentioned that a king's goodness is contingent upon the existence of somebody else. Typically a king is good until he stumbles or a king is just not good. This is the first time we have a king who is good until Uncle Jehoiada is no longer around. And Jehoiada was his uncle. His, um, jo- uh, the, Joash's father was the king and his father's sister, his aunt, was married to Jehoiada. And she's the one who saved him. And Jehoiada even lives a long time. He lives to be 130. But we should not expect an old man to outlive a 70-year-old. So verse 2 is this warning verse in the passage. Everything else flows from this and the unspoken question, what happens after Jehoiada is gone? Well, this is the only time a king is described in this way as being contingent upon someone living. And it, uh, it reminded me of... Um, well, it reminded me of Tiger Woods as perhaps greatest golfer ever, right? He won 14 majors in uh, about 16 or 17 years. Uh, the record, I think, is 18 or 19 by Jack Nicholas. So he was, he was approaching, breaking this almost untouchable record. Uh, he dominated the sport. He redefined the sport. He was so successful. And he was still young. He was approximately 40. And uh, then around 2008, his dad died. And then the first tournament that he was back, he missed the cut. In almost 17 years of golf, he'd never missed a cut in his life, right? And, uh, okay, it's just one tournament. He'll get back, and he did win a little bit more. And then all this stuff came out in around 2009, around Thanksgiving, golf clubs being smashed into cars. His life was coming apart at the seams. Uh, Adultery, affairs, 
divorce, and then failure on the golf course, right? And we can say, it's golf, it's just a sport, but this was his life. Uh, he'd made more money than anybody, any athlete probably ever, and he was dominating the sport unlike anybody had ever dominated, and his whole life was just coming apart. And it really seems like it could be, not to over-psychologize, it just seems pretty clear uh, that after his dad died, he just, he lost something. And there's something appropriate in that, to lose a parent, lose a loved one, uh, for a son to lose a father. Uh, but there's also this sense in which you are your own person and you are going to have to walk forward uh, somewhat alone. You're going to be responsible for your own actions and you can't depend on somebody else to do certain things that only you can do for yourself. And most children's experience will be that their parents will be gone at some point and you're going to have to live without that foundation as you will need to be that for the time that the Lord has given, you'll need to be that foundation for your children. And so Jehoiada is no longer around. And uh, for, for Tiger Woods' dad, his dad couldn't be his conscience in his, the decisions he made, and Jehoiada could not be for Joash, what Joash is called to be for himself. And so as, uh, as Joash depended on Jehoiada, Jehoiada was a holy man. We aren't given too many indications that Joash was a holy man. He seemed to know what needed to be done as long as Jehoiada was there to give advice and to help. Uh, but as, uh, as Jehoiada is gone, very quickly things come to unravel. As, uh, Jehoiada, uh, as, as Joash is not uh, handling his own things as he's supposed to, and he's looking to a priest to do maybe some things that a king should do. Or uh, perhaps um, he's, uh, he is not understanding some of the, the callings that the Lord had placed before him. He couldn't depend on a priest, this holy man, to be holy for him. Priests are representative of the people, um, but as the New Testament makes clear, the Old Testament also teaches, there's a priesthood of all believers. So any of the pastors here are, yes, we're called to be holy men, but we're not called to be holy men on your behalf. We're called to be holy one, because we're believers, all believers, you and I are called to be holy, but we're also called to be holy because we're set aside, set apart for a special task. Uh, in a similar way, uh, uh, the king is set aside for his task and the priest is set aside for his task. And so jo Joash perhaps fell into the temptation of thinking Jehoiada's got, got that holiness and spiritualness covered, uh, and yet uh, we see his his own holiness uh, come, come apart and have no, no identity and no reflection uh, as his life goes forward after the death of Jehoiada. And so we can see this sometimes uh, in our own lives as we might depend on somebody else to be holy for us. You know, the priest has got me covered. Uh, you know, the pastor, he's a holy man. I wouldn't want to say something uncouth in his presence, uh, we might alter our language around priests or pastors. We might call them holy men and forget about the holiness that we ourselves are called to. And so we see this in Scripture, uh, that 
There are some who are holy, who have no titles and no office. And there are some who have titles and office, and they're very unholy. Think of Hophni and Phinehas, the wicked sons of the high priest Eli, as they were wicked men, though they were priests. And then in the same account, same stories, we've contrasted with Hannah, a woman of prayer and humility, a faithful lover of God. No titles, no, no fanfare, and yet uh, she is clearly more holy than they, not depending on someone else to be holy on her behalf uh, in, the, in the earthly sense. And Joash is not a holy man. He's a capable administrator. He listens to good advice. He's a good advisor. But he is not in himself the man he needs to be to lead the people as the previous generation fades and he becomes an elder statesman. The years go by and he's no longer a seven-year-old. Uh, honestly, he was becoming king at seven years old. He was set up to quite easily become the longest reigning king in the history of Judah. All he had to do was live to be 62. He lives 40 years, which is long, but not long when you start at seven. And so in verse 15, the man that Joash had been leaning on for spiritual leadership and advice dies. And in this description, we see Jehoiada actually, this, this reads in verse 15, like the king's. He's the one who's buried with the kings. He's the one who's buried in the city of David. Uh, he's, he's kind of a true king that Jeho Joash is not. And so he hears those great words. He had done good in Israel and for God and his house. And old, it's an Old Testament way of saying, well done, good and faithful servant. What happens without Jehoiada? Well, the attention immediately turns to Joash and how he lives without this person that he depended on. So as, as, uh, as you come to the final day of the year, perhaps you have completed your Bible reading plan and you've seen how, uh, if your Bible reading plan was the McShane plan, then Chronicles and Kings were in the last couple months. So you've had some fresh examples. We've seen, and it's a common question, we see how Kings and Chronicles are contrasted with each other, but it's also a common question why repeat everything? I mean, some of these chapters are literally word for word, no variation from Kings and Chronicles. Some of them are very different. But why, why repeat everything? Well, to put it simply, Kings is probably written while they were in exile. So Kings is written from the perspective of how did we get ourselves in this mess? Chronicles is written from the perspective of restoration from exile to say, we saw how we got ourselves in this mess how do we keep from getting ourselves in this mess again? The answer is repentance. Repentance is the strong theme that runs through Chronicles. We have stories of repentance that we do not have in Kings, and we have uh, Kings that uh, can seem worse in Chronicles than they were in the book of Kings. And so it's, it's, a, it's a, the contrast of how we get ourselves in this mess and how do we get ourselves out. And so Joash starts out an example of a good king but quickly turns into a warning sign. Joash falls for the same foolishness that Rehoboam fell for. His peers come, they give bad advice, and he follows it. Simple as that. These are the officials who offer homage and respect, and they get to whisper sweet nothings in his ear. How does somebody fall into the same sin that everybody fell into, right? That's what gets repeated through the kings, through the chronicles. It's the same sin over again. Do they not, do they not read this book? Do they not know? Well, I think there's three applications for us 
to draw from Joash that would help us to understand how he gets himself into this mess. First thing that you should be thinking in regards to sin and these messes. One, do not think that it could not be you. Don't think, I'm not going to go off to college and act like that. Uh, When I get married, I'm not going to make all those mistakes that people early in their marriage make. Uh, when I become a young pastor, I'm not going to make the mistakes that young pastors make, right? I'm not going to have, uh, I'm not going to uh, be the one who had zeal without knowledge. I'm going to have knowledge. Uh, th- do not think that it could not be you. Second, be prepared to realize when you've sinned, it is you. Own it. The thing that you said you would never do, you did it. Now just admit it. So don't think it could not be you, so realize you too can fall. And second, own it when it is you. Joash does not think it could be him, and he does not own it when it comes, right? Look at all of these prophets that come in verse uh, six, verse 17. Uh, excuse me, verse 19. Yet God sent prophets among them to bring them back to the Lord. And these testified against them, but they would not pay attention. As the role of the Word of God is to convict of sin, and yet we can reject it and reject it. So one, don't think it could not be you. Two, when it is you, just own it. That's the beginning of repentance. Just owning our sin, saying, Lord, against you only have I sinned. And third, you do need to hear this. I need to hear this. Think about how to enjoy grace. Because once you've received grace, take it. Enjoy it. There's a great temptation when we sin and then we want to own our sin and we want to check the boxes and do things right. There's a sense in which if I just feel guilty enough for, guilty enough for long enough, that will help make amends for some of my sin. You cannot make amends for any of your sin. You can own it, you can claim it, say, that, yep, that's mine. That doesn't make it go away. It just puts a name on it. But then when it is taken away and you do receive grace, now you have an impetus to enjoy that grace, right? Enjoy that grace. Don't, all right, I'll take the grace and still feel a little guilty at the same time. <clears throat> and so we, as we see these things about Joash, we see that uh, he, he has rejected God's prophets. He, he doesn't own these things. He doesn't name his sin or claim his sin. And he doesn't receive grace. And so he doesn't receive the opportunity to enjoy grace. He's stubborn. He's well acquainted with that quality that's well known of mules. Joash does not just reject prophets. As the text reaches its climax, his own cousin, Zechariah, comes to him and says, why do you break the commandments of God? This would have been somebody who had been raised with in the temple. This is the son of that great trusted advisor, Jehoiada. And he not only rejects the words of Zechariah, but he, sa- he commands the people to stone him. To have Zechariah executed as if he was the lawbreaker. And for this sin, for the killing of a priest and functionally a brother, Joash receives his own just judgment. 
army comes against him like armies tend to come against him. The trials come. He does not cry out for help. But instead, he takes his army, which is bigger than his opposing army, which usually doesn't happen for Judah. Usually they have the smaller army. Usually they're the David against the Goliath. Instead, they're the Goliath against the David, and the Lord is letting the Syrians win. And he has handed this larger army of Judah into the hands of the Syrians to defeat them, to take all of their gold, to take all of their silver, and to bring Joash's reforms and good things to an end. And so he has received his just deserts. What he has received is Christ has come to him functionally, and Christ has spoken to him, and Christ has taught what he, he will teach in the New Testament. He says, you are proud, I am opposed to you, I will humble you so that I can be gracious to you. But Joash doesn't get that opportunity as his own servants, Ammonites and Moabites, come and execute him. And so his end is brought forward before he has a chance to repent. And so he lays there as a warning sign that we can't depend on others to do for us what we must do for ourselves. People can't have faith for you. You must believe. And also, you can be given 40 years, and that might not be enough time. And so the urgency and the warning flashes all the more strongly that there's a need to repent, and if the opportunity is here, even today, with an extra Sunday in 2023, the opportunity to believe, to repent, to depend on God's Word is here offered to you clearly in the life of Joash. And so we we see this earthly king, and we say, what does he teach us about Christ the king? And I might be tempted to say, he doesn't teach us very much. He's quite ungodly, except for the fact that what he teaches us is that where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more because there's a lot of sin here, and yet the warning is laid down because, as Paul said, these things were written for our instruction. And so you have the opportunity to learn from Joash and from his own doings and his own wickedness as he's been defeated and suffers the consequences of his own sin, and yet the Lord is laying out his own opportunities and his own offering of an olive branch, as it were. And so what we need to realize is that we don't try to do it ourselves, right? We can't depend on somebody to do it for us, but yet I've also been perhaps leaving you with the question about, what about Jesus? Isn't he the one who's supposed to do things for us? The answer is yes. Yes. We are enslaved to sin with its guilt and its power, but the blood of Christ is a double cure. So you can't depend on other people to do things for you that you must do for yourself, but you can depend on Christ to do the thing that you cannot do for yourself, and that is to save you from your own sin. And so believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. He's a prophet greater than Moses, a priest. After the order of Melchizedek, a king who's the true son of David. And through faith, grace abounds all the more. God is true to his covenant. He's true to his people and true to his character. So we can praise the Lord. Our sins, they are many, but through faith in Christ, his mercy is more. Amen. Let's pray. Lord in heaven, we come before you thanking you for this word that lays forward your, your warnings because there is a path, that, there are many paths that you do not want us to tread. But you have laid for us a straight 
and narrow path. The gate to that path is the Lord Jesus Christ. So we pray, O Lord, that you or your Spirit would work in us to realize that sin is crouching at our door and its desire is to master us. And O Lord, and when we do sin, you might help us to realize that we can own it and also that we can find in Jesus Christ out of his fullness grace upon grace. We thank you, O Lord, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.